Welcome to This Week Next Week from Group M. I'm Brian Weezer. I'm Kate Scott Dawkins. Thanks for tuning in. Um, you know, hey, Kate, uh, there's a lot going on, isn't there? There is. It's a much busier news week than last week where we were at a bit of a, a loss for things to uh, to chat about. So it's exciting. I know. I, I feel like there's so much going on. There's so much going on. I, I, I can't help but thinking about condiments. Okay, that one you're going to have to explain. Well, aren't you also thinking about the purpose of mayonnaise? <laughs> Only in as much as I can use it to get my kids to eat healthy lunches. Okay, I, we we should first of all explain some a bias that I have. Mayonnaise is evil. Mayonnaise okay. should not exist as a condiment. It is should not exist as a food product at all. Um, are you on the same page? I think we should clarify. If, I mean, there are lots of different terms. We have a global audience, right? I and mean, this means we're talking roughly about salad cream if you're in the UK, which that uh, makes it sound even worse. <laughs> okay, what's the issue with mayonnaise? The issue with mayonnaise is it came up a bunch uh, this week. Um, so a, an institutional investor in the UK uh, decided to, uh, in his annual letter to investors, take on Unilever. And um, in his letter said, um, a company which feels it has to define the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise has, in our view, clearly lost the plot. Uh, and goes on to say, the Hellman's brand has existed since 1913, so we would guess that by now consumers have figured out its purpose. Spoiler alert, salads and sandwiches. Actually, he's wrong on that front. Its purpose is never to be used. But let's just let's just take as a given that your kids want it, and there's probably other people who want this terrible, terrible uh, confection. Um, brand purpose. He, the basic uh, uh, story here is that you have a reasonably large, well-respected institutional investor, the so-called, you know, Warren Buffett of the UK, for those unfamiliar with um, uh, the investor in question, uh, basically saying that um, companies that are focused on purpose should be uh, focused on profits, for lack of a better characterization. Um, I, first of all, I'm, I, I got to call this out because the, and it's not just the, obviously we have our conflicts here that, uh, we work with a lot of, uh, companies who care about purpose. We right. as group M care, but do you care about purpose? Absolutely. Yeah. I like to have a purpose. Um, but I thought that it's worth calling out because, uh, okay. So there's some great work that Kantar, former sibling company of, WPP has done that connects very directly um, purpose, which has a definition, with brand power and brand power with sales performance. And although there are individual companies that may have underperformed because of their portfolio, they're not underperforming because they have purpose. I don't know. Kate, what do you think? Yeah, this was um, something I've, I've talked with colleagues in the past about. And I think what's interesting with the Kantar data is trying to draw a financial connection. I think other people have leaned maybe on um, consumer surveys that ask like, are you more likely to buy something from a brand that has values that are shared with you? And of, of course, if you ask me that, I'm going to say yes in a survey. Uh, I do like to see data on it that is is proved out in terms of where people are actually spending their money. Yep, that's fair. But I, I, I'm going to go so far as to suggest that it's unlikely that um, as someone criticizing uh, companies pursuing purpose have done a detailed financial analysis of 
the performance of individual brands with purpose versus those with not. And that's, you know, again, I, I just think in terms of like talent attraction, like how do you get a, how do you get people to work on a, a product that is, let's just say, not desirable, like mayonnaise? Um, <laughs> Some people may yeah. really like mayonnaise. Well, well, okay, maybe that's true. Maybe you don't need a purpose if you love mayonnaise. I think people have sometimes drawn a distinction between brands that can carve out a group of consumers and say we are for this group of consumers who you know share the same values and we may not be for this other group of consumers and that's okay um where that where i think people have drawn a distinction between that and something like a consumer packaged goods company that because of its products feels like it needs to appeal to a much wider set of the consumer base so how does that work in terms of shared values and purpose in your mind you know, um, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. Uh, I, I, I do think that it is, it, it may be one of the only ways to differentiate and, and maybe you don't need every consumer to care about your brand. But if you basically have decided that you can attract people to work on your brand unless they feel like they're doing good or contributing to the world in some form, then you do need to take stands in certain directions. And you do need to stand for something because if you stand for nothing, that's, that may not be a tenable position. And unfortunately, I think even for commodity products, uh, we're in a world now where brands will unwittingly be put in positions um, where they're perceived to stand for something. Think about the brands that got associated with the insurrection last year. Mm-hmm. Like, tired after a long day storming the Capitol? Come have a beer in our hotel lobby where drinks are half off. Right? I mean, there were real brands that got associated with that. And that's if you're not out there actively standing for something, you will be perceived as standing for something else. So I think that's something every brand has to think about. Yeah, the employment attraction and retention thing is certainly top of mind as well. Um, and, you know, labor market is especially tight in the U.S. Um, I haven't seen the most recent data for uh, you know other global markets, um, but people are going to have to be thinking about that in terms of retaining people to work on those brands. Absolutely. So what else have you been thinking about? A clue, not mayonnaise. <laughs> not mayonnaise, no. Um, one of the big things this week I thought we could talk about was the Take-Two acquisition of Zynga. Are you a gamer? We talked about this last time, right? I'm doing Wordle. I'm, I'm on oh, the... Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I saw no, it made I mean, an appearance on uh, late night shows last night. I should make a more specific uh, question. Are, did you ever play Farmville? No. Yeah, I never got into that. Uh, but that's that's funny how we I still think of Zynga and I think of Farmville. It's ten, that's I think a, a lot of reference. people do. Yeah, I think <laughs> a lot of people do. So they're talking so, about uh, combining, right? Um, and they're reported to have combined net bookings, not revenue, but net bookings of $6.1 billion for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2021. That makes them, you know, a, a, a decent sized player in terms of interactive uh, companies. How much of that is advertising? Because that's what I think a lot of people in this business, they think, oh, wow, Zynga, Farmville, advertising and casual gaming. Uh, Any estimates to share? Uh, You've been through and looked uh, as well, right? Was it somewhere in the 300, 500 million range? It's not the majority of that. And certainly, I mean, there wasn't a mention at all of advertising on Take-Two's side. Um, it's going to be all brought in by the the mobile component of the Zynga purchase. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about casual gaming as a 
just an advertising vehicle going forward. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it feels like there's a there there, but it doesn't. It feels like a a modestly sized there there. I've so I've been looking at this a little bit, as you know, over the last um, couple weeks, and have been I think surprised is the right word at how much I assumed really a majority maybe of mobile gaming revenue was advertising and so much more of it is in-game purchases than I would have thought. So the advertising slice of the pie um, in terms of what I've been seeing in the the financial results we've been looking at is much smaller than I would have thought at the outset. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people get surprised when they dig into it. I still remember maybe, was it 15 years ago when um, Massive uh, sold to uh, Microsoft and at the time, this narrative had been created, perhaps through clever press releases, <laughs> that um, where have all the young men gone? They've gone to go play in-game advertising or in-game, uh, they've gone to play video games. So therefore, marketer, you should buy in-game advertising to reach them. And, uh, you know, that didn't seem to match reality in terms of where spending went. There wasn't that much at that time. And I don't think that there's not that much today. I Something to watch, um, certainly, as these console companies like uh, Take-Two or, you know, console and, and PC gaming companies buy these more mobily focused studios. So EA last year also acquired uh, Glue Mobile and uh, I think it's Metalhead and, and at least one more. Um, and an EA exec at the time said on an earnings call, you know, an investor asked them about how this might impact their consideration of advertising as a source of revenue. And they didn't point to anything immediate or any full-scale shift in philosophy, but they certainly recognized that the acquisition brought in a significant amount of expertise in mobile advertising. And so I, think, I don't think we know yet whether those revenue models will stay quite separate or whether that will start to make its way into the console and PC-based side of the business as well. True. And it is worth noting that the uh, the upside is that is really high margin activity. So even if it is a small percentage, the, the contribution margin, the incremental profitability that comes from every incremental dollar of revenue is substantially higher than, um, you know, selling a game. So that's all all good for them. Yeah, really good point. Anything else you've been uh, reading or looking at this week? Well, you know, it's an American data point, but it's still relevant to the rest of the world. You know, we just had a new retail sales data um, on a Friday morning. What's really interesting is that, okay, so this is a bigger point about economics in general. Are too many economists, not all of them, certainly headline writers, focus on sequential numbers, meaning the December number over the November number, the November number over the October number, and then annualize that. I don't think that many lay people, non-economists appreciate this because when we're trying to look at the health of the overall economy or part of the economy, we want to be able to compare the year-over-year growth rates to other year-over-year growth rates, not sequential growth rates to year-over-year growth rates. So the new retail sales data, again, there's a sort of a negative read that underperformed versus expectations. Maybe there's some shifting of activity in the fall uh, between December and October. But Here's the thing, the year over year growth rate on an unadjusted basis, retail sales were up 16.9%. Wow. Did you sp- did you spend 16.9% more at retail year over year? Um I don't 
No, that's a good question. I probably should keep better track of my Christmas budget than I do. We were trying to avoid the, uh, I mean, what people said was going to be a shipping and, and fulfillment nightmare. Um, so we went with some more um, like zoo memberships or museum memberships this year for for gifts instead. Uh, but that's that's a big number, bigger than I would have expected. It absolutely is. I mean, just to go through some headlines again, year over year, you, anyone can go download the PDF or the Excel spreadsheet. You don't need to read about it in uh, your business press of choice. But, you know, the headlines, well, because they don't usually write about it on a year over year basis. So you kind of do need to go to the original source material. But just for reference. OK, so motor vehicle uh, and parts dealers up 10.6 percent year over year. OK, so even in an inflationary market, auto sales are up 10.6 percent at auto dealers. Um, that's on that's, it sounded like the supply chain was starting to come around for autos. They were getting more shipments. Did I see that? And then you may have, but I think what's happened is that auto dealers may have less inventory with higher prices. Right. So crude math: if you had 20% fewer cars but 30% higher price per average car, boom, you get 10% more revenue. Yep. Um, I mean, just a couple of other highlights. I mean, food and beverage stores up 9.3%. Uh, gas stations, 41%, because fuel is very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, clothing up 29%. Um, this is one that I think a lot of people will find interesting. Non-store retailers up only 9.7%. That doesn't tell us what e-commerce is doing, but it is sort of the closest proxy we get um, for an e-commerce number, at least for a few weeks. All right, we're going to touch more on inflation in our deeper dive section. I did want to get to one other piece of the news this week, if that's okay. I think it was maybe yeah, a little bit overlooked. Um, so Apple's private relay. Do you know what this is, Brian? I do, but maybe not every listener does. All right. So it's similar in some ways to a VPN in that it masks your internet traffic from Apple um, and your ISP. Uh, in this case, maybe a telecoms operator. Um, and also anyone else looking to track your online behavior. Uh, it's, I think, currently available anyone with a paid iCloud account. Um, why should we care? Well, why should we care? <laughs> the, the news was that um, several T-Mobile clients were getting messages that they weren't able to use the service in the U.S. this week. Um, there were reports of that in Europe as well. Um, so... It goes beyond Apple, um, and this is something that I predicted some time ago that I think now is starting to take shape. Basically, that many people could do this, say a password manager, um, like a LastPass or someone else, would start offering that additional layer of privacy as a service as well. They already have access to all of your passwords. They could offer you a spoofed email address, which is basically one of the things that Apple's private relay is able to do. They can generate an email address that isn't the one that I would give to my, you know, the friends and family to reach me. Um, so they can do a spoofed email address when subscribing to a new site, in addition to suggesting a strong password. So this obfuscates the user's main or real email address in ISP and makes it harder to match that user, basically, via tools uh, like onboarders or data providers. And so I think we're starting to see this being developed, and it has potentially quite large knock-on effects. I mean, the message for the last couple of years has been, you know, build your first-party data set, um, collect email addresses and, and the like. But if those email addresses are no longer tied to real people 
I guess the question is how um, how valuable is that first party data set going forward? Yeah, well, here's a question. I mean, marketers have sometimes over relied on precise data in the sense that connecting cause and effect is always a little fuzzy or maybe fuzzier than is appreciated. They're modeled um, you know, connections between uh, cause and effect. Tell me if you agree with this. Does a better idea about how to engage with a consumer have the potential to produce a better outcome, even if you can't always measure it? I would think so. I would think so too. And I think that that's kind of the the end goal here. Like, sure, marketers are going to have less data, but they have to invest more in big ideas about how to connect with consumers because ultimately that's the thing that will cause a consumer to engage with a brand. I, I don't know. That's kind of my thinking and that some of this is, I don't want to say moot. It's not unimportant, but um, but I don't know. I mean, do you think that it actually causes advertisers to reduce their spending? I don't know that it causes a reduction in spending. I think it sets up a bit of a, a power dynamic between uh, some of these telecoms. So in the Europe region, they actually wrote to the European Commission and requested that uh, Apple private relay not be allowed to exist, basically. Um, I think of a quote, Verge did some reporting on this uh, so because the feature is cutting off other networks and servers from accessing vital network data and metadata, including those operators in charge of the connectivity. Um, so the well, question is, the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I thought one of the more interesting read throughs from this was, well, wait, what if they can actually, the, the carriers can actually get the regulators to ban um, this product, which would create a really interesting dynamic for uh, the power of the telco, if you will, um, as a steward of data, um, which is kind of an interesting place for them to be in. Yeah, the question is how much is it really based on their ability to provide service and how much of it is that they've been ingesting this data around what their consumers are browsing or shopping or, or viewing and they don't want to have that cut off. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, telcos have often had these nascent uh, efforts to to build out um data-related advertising businesses, obviously, you know, famously, you know, AT&T and Verizon in the U.S., but uh, but in in, the, in Europe, certainly, some of the telcos still have uh, pretty substantial um, businesses. Yep. All right, should we get into uh, the deeper dive? Absolutely. And so uh, the boost of uh, inflating um, the role of uh, something around here, let's talk about inflation. Um. So inflation is certainly top of mind for a lot of people. Um, I don't know, Kate, have you noticed anything that you're paying a lot more for now versus a year ago? Certainly gas. Uh, I think, you know, we have one electric car, but still one uh, internal combustion engine. And that's definitely noticeable going to the pumps for sure. You know, for me, it's bacon. 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 <laughs> <laughs> you want a side bacon. of mayo with that? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, bacon is up by like 20% year over year in the December uh, data for uh, the U.S. Um, you can go through, again, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has uh, all of these different, um, you know, hundreds of different categories of, uh, of uh, products where you can see, um, yeah, just to be clear, um, uncooked ground beef up 13%. Uh, uncooked beef roasts up 22.1%, uncooked beef steaks 21.4%, beef and veal 23.4%, bacon, actually bacon's only up 16.3%, uh, 
or 18.6% rather for bacon and related products. So there you go. Yeah, maybe lot, this right? is why. Yeah, but maybe this is why I haven't noticed. We've been buying a lot more um, plant-based protein, which is a uh, in, increasing sector. There Are you, you on the uh, plant-based protein train? I like plants, but not in place of bacon. So keep away from there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So why does this matter? Consumer price inflation is up a lot. In the U.S., the numbers are uh, was around 7%. It's been min and pushing towards the high single digits. Uh, in the U.S., in uh, Europe and the U.K., it's certainly a mid-single digit number. Uh, these are high numbers for uh, economies which were used to numbers closer to zero to two and where central banks were pushing that. Now, China um, even has some inflation, around 2% or so right now. Um, you know, that's not so bad. India is a bit higher. It, it, it varies around the world. But the biggest markets collectively are experiencing elevated rates of inflation. And so we end up getting a lot of questions here at Group M uh, about, well, gee, we as a marketer uh, or a marketer has to figure out how to manage for inflation. Uh, it's a real issue. Now, consumer price inflation and uh, marketers experience inflation with media don't necessarily go together. Uh, I don't know that many people think of it um, as being, you know, that separate. But a couple of observations that we've seen, certainly. Um, when marketers experience inflation, there are a few things that they can do. And again, when we have a broadly, uh, rapidly growing economy, uh, you have everyone used to paying more for things, it, maybe we start to tune out just how much more like-for-like -like things cost. But marketers are able to do a number, certain number of things. They can substitute goods. So, Kate, you mentioned plant-based products instead of meat ones. Have you ever found that you've substituted a, a cheaper thing for a more expensive thing? Oh, ever? For sure. <laughs> yeah. Like very directly, right? Like, and it, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, in, instead of um, paying for traditional cable, I, I have a mix of uh, Sling and uh, uh, several SVOD services. I don't know. Can you think of any other examples? Yeah, I think um, most families, when they do the the math walking down grocery store aisles or when they're thinking about things to, to do outside, they're considering substitutes all the time. Um, you know, I think uh, with the pandemic, that's been pushed even further, right? So maybe you're going to pay for some kind of sporting equipment, um, like a kayak or something, because you're not going to pay for that gym membership indoors. So certainly. That's a great example. Yeah. And so what we see with marketers in terms of dealing with this is that when they have higher rates of inflation, they'll say, well, hey, I used to buy all broadcast free to air television. There's also other video that's, say, cable. And of course, over the decades, that's been a contributing factor. Cable would cost half as much as broadcast. Shift your mix into cable. Boom. You've just reduced your experience inflation. YouTube probably helps solve for that for some marketers as well in many cases, right? Yep. So the shift of mix is one way that marketers are, are uh, taking care of this. Have I ever told you, though, about uh, uh, what marketers did in the 1950s with inflation? Uh, I think I remember this. This is, this is the start of flights. Why don't you uh, why don't you inform the rest of our, our listeners? Right. So I replaced a, a person who uh, when I was at a, another company that shouldn't be named, I replaced someone who started in uh, this field in the 1940s and I saw uh, an acetate. Of, uh, of inflation from the 1950s. I was oh my God, how did you manage that? How do you manage like 100% inflation on television? He said, oh, it's simple. We invented the flight. 
the idea of instead of buying your bacon every week, maybe you buy your bacon every second week. Now your bacon budget has just been cut in half. You could cut your plant budget in half. True, true. Very smart. <laughs> so anyways, there are uh, a number of tactics that we um, we certainly observe, um, different approaches to managing media. Um, the other thing that's worth talking about with inflation, let's go back to the consumer. Um, I hear consumers matter. Uh, we love consumers. So, yeah, we love consumers, of course. So advertising budgets. I don't know, Kate, if you've seen this in, in your experiences, but certainly as we've tried to study uh, companies and how they allocate budgets, when they experience inflation uh, or they're able to pass pricing on, along to consumers and they generate more revenue, they tend to allocate a commensurate share of revenue into advertising. So 5% more revenue because of 5% inflation probably leads to 5% more of an advertising budget. Yeah, and so, those numbers are pretty consistent over time, right? You're going to see the, roughly the same allocation as a percent of revenue yeah, you know, absolutely. without big swings. And the one other uh, thing that we've noted around inflation uh, is that in some cases, marketers are saying, well, in a growth market where consumers are willing to pay for goods, uh, you want, but you, you have higher input costs that you want to cover and you can pass your costs along to consumers. You may need to spend more money on advertising to justify the higher price. So I don't know. Can you think of a campaign or a product where they've had to persuade you pay more? We're worth it. Not off the top of my head. I have to say, um, I knew there was another example you brought up this week. Um, we were talking about PlayStation and some of the other things that people are doing around the rising cost of inputs. Uh, right. Well, I mean, this is this is another strategy that I think some manufacturers are taking with respect to uh, you know higher pricing and uh, product shortages. Reintroduce the old product. Um, there's reporting that uh, uh, Sony is apparently manufacturing new PS4s because of shortages of goods that go into PS5. Anyways, inflation is not a topic that's going away anytime soon, but uh, certainly one that marketers are going to be paying attention to. But speaking of paying attention, we will be paying attention to all sorts of things in the week ahead. Kate, uh, what's top of mind for you? Well, I think people are starting to look at the Olympics. It doesn't start next week uh, yet. It's February 4th. Um, but and you are a former Olympic contender. Olympic hopeful, know. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's um, a topic very near and dear to my heart. I was a summer sport, not a winter sport, um, but I do watch uh, as much as I can every time it comes around. I think we're going to be talking about this more as we get closer to the Olympics. So we'll. Uh, hey, should we have like a, a poll of uh, listeners for those who don't know you, like what they think you uh, competed in? Pretty sure they can find it on my LinkedIn. It uh, wouldn't take anyone to. All right. <laughs> listeners, listeners, without looking, without looking, what sport do you think that Kate Scott Dawkins uh, competed in? There competed you go. In. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, there are questions around COVID, right? China famously still pursuing um, COVID zero policy. We also saw a lot of uh, sports headlines this week around the Australian Open um, and Novak Djokovic. So I think there's still a bit of, I don't know, question for advertisers around what is going to happen and, and what it's exactly going to look like um, when February 4th comes around. 
Yeah, that's a, it's a really uh, important point. We certainly uh, <laughs> faced a lot of questions on this around the Tokyo Olympics, both in 2020 and then 2021. And uh, in 2021, when it seemed like, well, maybe they'll cancel, maybe they won't, it did seem wise for every marketer to have a backup plan just in case. So that still seems like a good idea. Not that there's uh, uh, actual plans for a cancellation, but this pandemic, you never really know. But I think the, um, the other important thing is that that is what will likely happen is those budgets may shift around, but won't disappear for the year just because the Olympics doesn't happen. I mean, I not that we're saying that's, you know, yeah, absolutely. what we expect, but yeah. Well, and this is an important point. I think that for a long, long time, people uh, would reference the quadrennial effect, the idea that every four years or two in the you know, U.S. with congressional elections, that there was some distortion in the advertising economy. We do find that political advertising has a distorting effect uh, in the U.S., but Olympics and World Cup, you can't see it in the numbers anymore. Yeah. Uh, what else is happening next week? We have some earnings, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but quite the agenda setters, uh, Procter & Gamble reporting um, their results will be the first big packaged goods company to result uh, produce results. And I think that will inform a lot of thinking around input cost issues, inflation and other related uh, activities. And um, and then Netflix and, uh, you know, which is really the agenda setter for the media industry at this point, our world as well. Yeah, are we going to hear more about their content production plans, do you think? What are we are we have any predictions around what we're going to hear? No, I don't. I don't tend to forecast the specifics of what they'll say, but they uh, they surprise us with really important you know data points. And certainly, we'll get full year 2021 numbers, and maybe they'll give us some guidance on 2022. But I think that uh, you know all the data points just keep uh, continuing to um, focus our attention on them because they're spending so much money on content. They're impacting. Um, traditional video markets in so many ways and that really ultimately impacts every marketer who depends on television is really impacted by whatever they will do and the billions of dollars they'll spend yep yep and setting that cultural conversation as well uh, i yep. enjoyed all the all the conversation around don't look up absolutely well and we'll be back uh, next week i'm sure reviewing those earnings and uh, others uh so with that we'll probably wrap up this week's edition of This Week Next Week. Uh, I'm Brian Weezer. I'm Kate Scott Dawkins. This Week Next Week is hosted by me, Kate Scott Dawkins, and Brian Weezer. Our producer is Jared Bayman. Our showrunner is Sam Weston. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and are not intended to represent those of Group M or its clients. If you have questions, comments, or requests for future segments, let us know at business.intelligence at groupm.com. <laughs>